Welcome to Upskill with EdTech, a production of SkillRise, an initiative of ISTE. I'm your host, Brandon Olszewski, Director of Research at ISTE. In our second season, Learners for Life, we explore the need for increasing access to digital resources and how to use them to advance professional learning and upskilling. This season, those of us on the SkillRise team will be interviewing adult learning professionals who are upping their knowledge of ed tech to better support adult learning, as well as experts in the field to better understand trends in work and lifelong learning. The future of work is here, and we're ready to dig in. Welcome. On the podcast today, we have Richard Collada, Chief Executive Officer at ISTE. Prior to joining ISTE, Collada served as the Chief Innovation Officer for the State of Rhode Island. In this role, he focused on developing partnerships to improve opportunities for students, including launching a program to make Rhode Island the first state to offer computer science in every K-12 school, and creating a state vision for personalized learning. As the director of the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Educational Technology, Collada was at the helm of numerous efforts to expand connectivity to schools across the country, promote personalized learning, and develop the National Education Technology Plan. He also pioneered new ways for the department to engage with educators and tech developers. Richard also serves as the Innovation Dean at the Maisie Learning Consortium, a group of 250 chief learning officers from companies in the United States and around the globe. He also served as the Head of Learning Innovations for CIA University, responsible for training the members of the U.S. intelligence community. Richard, thank you for joining us and welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Today's conversation is going to focus on educational technology, K-12, and also the world of adult learning. So one premise of SkillRise is that learning is something we do across our lifetimes. Historically, ISTE has worked mostly with adults who work in the field of K-12 education. These are teachers and education leaders. Richard, tell me, um, why is ISTE expanding to other areas of adult learning now and recently? Um, what role does SkillRise play in the larger ISTE vision for learning? Yeah, so, so SkillRise obviously is this uh, brand that we're using for the work that we're doing beyond the, the K-12 space and really even in some ways beyond the higher education space in, in our uh, workplace learning, in our learning that we're preparing uh, people to be effective in, in future jobs. And I think this makes sense when you think about the fact that we are in a very uh, interesting moment right now as, as, a, as a country, as, as a world, in the fact that we've, you know, we've kind of entered into maybe, maybe what is our most significant collective learning moment ever. And, you know, I, I think, like it or not, uh, COVID has forced us into a... a moment where we have to relearn all kinds of things. And, you know, most of our important interactions have now migrated to the digital world and frankly are not going to go back after this is is all over. So we need to be thinking about how everyone can be learning in this new environment. And yes, of course, ISTE cares deeply about K-12 uh, students and teachers because they have an exponential impact on how their work can, can uh, shape the future learning of a whole bunch of people as they as they grow up, you know, young people as they move into into jobs and careers and college, et cetera. But at this urgent time, 
we have to make sure the principles of learning using technology can be applied to everyone across all fields if we're going to successfully emerge from this uh, this moment that we're in. Let's take it one step further, too. Um, given recent events in history, especially around conversations around institutionalized racism and how we're approaching equity as a, as a society, how is ISTE approaching questions around equity and learning in K-12? And how do some of these conversations and lessons extend to the world of adult learning? This is a critically important question that we are spending a lot of time uh, focusing on ISTE. And, and frankly, you, you always have. One of our core missions has been looking at how do we make sure we use technology to uh, increase access to opportunities for all learners everywhere, right? Uh, ISTE is not just a U.S. organization. We work in 75 countries around the world, and many of which, like us, have uh, longstanding cases, situations of extreme inequity in their learning programs, in their schools. And so uh, we believe very strongly that, um, that technology is a key role, plays a key role in helping to address some of these uh, longstanding issues of inequality. And, and I think a lot of this comes down to some basic fundamental problems with our education system. And, and largely, this idea that no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, no matter what your previous learning experience has been, you are offered a single program for learning uh, moving forward, whether that's math, whether that's science, whether it's whatever it is, that you have a, a program that you can, you can uh, participate in. And we know that students are not all the same. They're not all, uh, you know, the, the examples that are, that are, that are used, the, the support structures that they may have at home, the, all of the whole variety of uh, factors are not the same. And therefore, it is, in, it is essential that our learning systems can adapt and adjust to the needs of individual students. You know, sometimes I, I, I've said, you know, I think one of the least equitable things we do in education is treat all learners the same. And, and, and they're not. And they, and they need to have supports that are uh, uh, allowing them to really excel. And so I think about the ways that technology can help with this. Certainly, there are ways to use technology to increase the access to expertise, right? Wherever you are, uh, you should not have your ability to connect with an expert mentor limited only by who is in physical proximity to you, right? There's access to content and, and learning materials. For many, many years, that was dependent on whether you could have uh, updated textbooks. And of course, the schools that uh, were, were in areas that did not have as much funding, generally had more outdated materials. Uh, that is not true when you are looking at the use of digital materials. There is access to supportive peer groups, right? There are uh, tools, the, the ability to adapt and adjust the learning experience to individual learner needs, uh, not to mention a whole bunch of opportunities for accessibility for students whose uh, challenges in, include um, you know, le learning disabilities or, or uh, physical uh, physical disabilities. M my point is, there are some systemic, you know, realities that we have to grapple with and recognize that we have not done a good job of providing equitable learning experiences for all students. 
And, and while technology is not a magic wand that you can just wave and make all of that go away, it does provide some tools that if we care about addressing this issue, if we care about really uh, rethinking some of the longstanding problems in our education system, technology provides those tools that can help us actually come up with some of those, uh, those solutions. And that's why I think it's so critical that we are looking at this, not just for the K-12 space, not even just for the higher ed space, but anybody anywhere who's learning needs to be able to take advantage of the right tools to be able to have the opportunities that they, that they deserve. Richard, thanks for those thoughts on how ISTE is responding to institutionalized racism, how we want to be thinking about equity moving forward, and also some of these like, you know, promising shifts in educational practices that respond to the coronavirus pandemic. Um, curious, you threw a lot of ideas at us. Which of them do you think are going to stick? You know, are, are there some low-hanging fruit you think we want to go after first? Um, what do you think the near future looks like for adult learners, adult ed organizations, maybe even the world of work? Yeah, I mean, I think you're... Um... <laughs> You know, the interesting thing that you bring up here is that we have been handed a pretty awesome opportunity to actually be able to address some of the the, the changes that need to be made and how we learn um, in schools, at, at, at work. But just because we've been given this opportunity doesn't mean that things are going to automatically change. Like, I want to just emphasize that there's a very real, you know, chance that at some point down the road things could revert back to how it was before we all left for this coronavirus thing in, you know, February or March. And, and so it's really on us to be able to decide that we're going to take advantage of this chance to make these changes, right? Sometimes there's that old saying, never let a good emergency go to waste, right? We have a, uh, an emergency here and there are some chances for really, really significant silver linings to come out of it. But um, there's so much momentum behind uh, maintaining the status quo in our learning spaces that we absolutely have to make some conscious decisions about resetting things if we want to find ourselves in a different place uh, down the road. And frankly, I think the worst thing that could come out of all of this is uh, if the you know workplaces, colleges, schools that we go back to in you know September, October, look the same as the ones that we left in in March. I think I would also say one other thing is that there's an opportunity here as we think about the idea of reboarding. And many organizations are thinking about how do we go about bringing people back in the door, right? When it's time to come back and start uh, bringing their teams back together again. And, and, And yes, of course, they're talking about training people on how to keep social distance and they're talking about how to sanitize the copy machine or whatever. But but if that's all that's on the agenda for reboarding, again, we've missed a really, really critical opportunity. And so as we think about reboarding, we should also be thinking about how are we addressing issues of uh, inequality in the workplace? How are we addressing issues of you know learning uh, that has not been effective? How are we taking advantage of uh, experts and expertise that are not that we're not over relying on experts and expertise that are in our close physical proximity when we actually have technology that can help us figure out how to be engaged more broadly and, and, and more widely. So all of those things have got to be on the uh, agenda as we start this reboarding process and coming back to uh, to the workplace. 
Richard, you know, changing the status quo in the learning space is no small feat. Um, you've been able to do a lot of that throughout your career. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about some promising examples from K-12, where educators and leaders transformed education. What were some of the elements around those transformations that may port over well to adult learning? Are there some lessons you want to you wanna share with us that you think would transfer really well from the K-12 space into the world of adult learning? Something promising we can look forward to? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it goes both ways. There are things that, that need to be learned on both sides. And I think one of the things that's really valuable uh, for people that are in the, in the adult learning space is to have a better understanding of what's happening on the K-12 side and vice versa, right? So uh, I'll tell you one of the things that the K-12 side of the, of the you know, divide, if you will, has figured out is how to do a better job of assessing learning capabilities, right? Uh, we have really put a high priority on at least doing, knowing how to uh, recognize what skills and competencies students have. And, uh, and yes, sometimes that's done through um, ineffective multiple choice tests, which we all want to go away. But I, but I want to make sure people understand that there are many, many schools and many places that are doing that assessment in much more authentic ways, right? Through projects, through um, a whole variety of, of opportunities that students have to demonstrate their work. And that's a piece that we need to do a much better job of learning in the, uh, the, the workplace. Unfortunately, a lot of workplace learning is, uh, if it's online, it's what we call, you know, nexters, right? You just sort of click next, 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 next through the screen. And then at the end, if you haven't slipped into a coma, you can print out a little certificate and now you, you know, you've learned something. A lot of compliance training like that. And that's just not helpful learning. Right? That's not a good use of anybody's time. It's demoralizing to sit there and to not have any attempt to even see what you already know or what you what you you know should know and how you're lining up with that. And so that's one of those areas where I think the the uh, workplace side has a lot to learn from the uh, the K twelve side. Um, uh, let me let me go the other way though, just just to to show the the flip um, in the other direction. I think one of the things that the uh, workplace side is very good at that we could do a better job on the K-12 side learning is uh, making sure that everything is very practical and applied. And I worry that sometimes on the K-12 and higher ed side, you're learning a lot of stuff uh, in order to apply it in some hypothetical future that you'll find yourself in. And that's not very compelling, right? That's not very compelling for a student to say, yep, in, in 10 years, this will be really important to you. And so I think the idea of making sure that uh, learning experiences are applicable in the moment, like literally the second you walk out of the learning experience, um, is is something that we that other parts of the learning world need to pick up and model from what's happening in workplace learning. You know, those are some for me at least inspirational examples of what uh, both sides of the divide per se are doing in terms of promising practices and things like that. And one thing that I think we've learned at ISTE is that, you know, each year at our conference, we gather about, you know, 20,000 people to get together and share these uh, innovative ideas and in learning. And sometimes they go back to their schools or districts and, you know, they realize that there's also a policy piece here, right? Mm -hmm. So we may have some kind of grassroots, really new innovative ideas for what learning experiences can look and feel like, but there's also, we also need some top-down support. Are there any education policy trends that you've noticed that may be relevant, um, especially in the world uh, for in terms of their application for adult learning organizations 
or the world of work, anything you've seen in policy that you think is opening a door for more of these innovative practices? I certainly think that a recognition of the wide variety of uh, sources for learning, and I don't just mean informal learning, I mean for formal learning experiences, um, is, is starting to take place. And we're starting to see that through policy and certainly through um, through practice, right? And so the idea that you could only choose between a handful of um, higher education institutions for learning that really counted, that I, I think that definition is broadening quite a bit. And even within the regulations that determine what a higher ed institution is and looks like can shift. So for example, um, I've been uh, involved with an organization called College Unbound, which is basically a, an organization that's been redesigning the higher ed experience for working adults. And it's been fascinating to see what a, uh, a college looks like if it was designed from scratch with the idea of working to support working to support people who are currently working and have other life responsibilities. I feel like the vast majority of, of higher ed institutions right now are trying to kind of shave a square peg into a round hole, and we need to do much more building from scratch um, aligned to the, the needs of this population. And, um, and, and I think we're, we're starting to see that, which is exciting. So for decades, maybe centuries, we have had uh, this model of going to school to learn, and then a very clear ending to that phase when we then shift over to going into work mode, right? Um, and, and we do lots of things to symbolize that that phase is ending. We have a graduation. We have, um, you know, the access to our learning materials gets taken away. If you are in a physical college campus, you, your student ID gets taken away, right? We, we make these very clear distinctions between learning time being over and work time beginning. And that is just a, a, an incredibly outdated model for the world that we live in, a world where learning can cannot ever stop like that. And so we have to get used to the fact that we will always be learning and we will always be working simultaneously. And, and so it means a number of things are going to have to be redesigned, right? Work is going to need to be redesigned to accommodate and support and encourage participation in ongoing learning, right? Not just not just deal with it, but but actually optimize around ongoing learning experience. And, and, I, and I don't just mean, you know, on-the-job training, but formal learning experiences. And on the flip side, learning is going to need to be redesigned in order to make sure it is relevant to the skills that people need to apply in their immediate lives. Again, not some hypothetical future, but also that the format is one that accommodates and supports and, and encourages uh, working while simultaneously learning. And so I feel like those uh, those shifts, those those model shifts on both sides, both on the work side and the learning side, are going to be critical if we're going to if we're going to set ourselves up to be successful learners and workers of the future. Well, Richard, as we're wrapping up, maybe we'll go kind of even one more level up, even past policy, to kind of think about like system wide change. Um, you know, you've led some really impressive system-wide change, uh, both at the U.S. Department of Education, the state of Rhode Island. Um, you were just describing, too, like this awesome idea of like, wow, what if we could design new educational systems from scratch, unhindered by history and the things maybe, the mistakes we made, you know? That's a really promising, inspiring kind of idea. When you, when you think about that 
you know, the, the work you've done leading system-wide change in government at ISTE, what are some of those barriers that prevent innovation? And what can leaders of any organization, especially in the world maybe of adult ed, do to ensure successful impl- implementation of new ideas? Like some words of inspiration you maybe want to leave us with. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. And um, I think oftentimes people will go to things like, you know, money um, or, uh, you know, policy changes, right? That's often where, where you think about. But, but it, what I've seen is actually m- much simpler than that. And it is being very thoughtful about getting different perspectives in the design of learning. And so if, you know, we, this is a theme that's now come up several times in our conversation today. If you think about running a, a training program for future employees or for current employees, it would be very, very wise to be able to get viewpoints from very different learning environments. Bring in a kindergarten teacher, bring in a, uh, you know, a, a higher ed faculty member, bring in somebody who has been developing learning experiences that are intended to be used as kind of boot camps. There's a whole model right now of, you know, boot camp learning is bring in those very differing viewpoints. And it's, it's, it's really interesting to see how many of the challenges that we're currently facing anywhere in any place already have answers, right? They're already uh, solutions we just don't know about them because our circle tends to be limited to the area that we we focus on. The uh, uh, writer, actor, William Gibbons said, the future is already here. It's just not very evenly distributed. And, and I really think that's true. I think there are, you know, innovations, right, exist. And we just have to do a much better job of, of curating and finding them, not sort of sitting around and thinking this crazy idea is going to pop into our mind. And I think maybe that's another point about about innovation that I found before, which is that I think a lot of times people view innovation as some crazy new thing that you do off the radar, off in some new space, and you just blow everything up. And and in fairness, there have been some innovations that have been like that. But by far, the vast majority of innovations have been people who have just done this cycle of iterations of small things after small things over time that lead to a very different place, right? Identifying uh, learning needs, identifying schedule challenges that are keeping people from learning in the way that they need to, identifying the, you know, uh, challenges with the way we capture and and record people's learning experiences. I mean, one of the, one of the things I think is so crazy about uh, adult learning is we don't really do a very good job of, of, of providing a, a snapshot of what people know in a way that they can take it and show it to a future employer or a future uh, you know, follow-on learning experience, right? That's not a massive shift. It's just a small, simple problem. But if we could solve that problem, it would move things forward very um, significantly. Having some common language around what we are what we are learning. Again, that's part of what you're trying to do here with our uh, the, the ISTE work and saying, here are some common technology skills that all people need to have. Innovation and, and really significant steps forward often happen, and in my experience, happen much more frequently from small, bite-sized steps in the right direction than a massive clean slate uh, restart to a whole system, which, which frankly rarely, uh, rarely happens. Richard, coincidentally, um, you know, Skill Rise is really about this idea that we're lifelong learners. It's our job to learn something new every day. And from what we know, for instance, from the learning sciences is that 
you're right. Learning tends to happen in small steps. It's, it's effortful. <laughs> uh, we tend to do this in little pieces, uh, day after day, one step ahead of the other. And then eventually something new opens up to us is kind of almost like an accumulation of that knowledge. So thanks for leaving us with that inspiring thought. Richard Collada, thank you so much for joining us today on Upskill with EdTech. Uh, it's been an honor to talk with you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Really, really great to be part of this series. The Upskill with EdTech podcast series is produced by Getting Smart as part of ISTE's SkillRise initiative. Our editor and music man is Trevor Stout. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For additional valuable ideas about edtech, adult learning, and upskilling, check out skillrise.org, where you can download the Skillrise framework and find other great resources. You can also keep up to date by following our Twitter feed at skillrise.org, or you can join the conversation in our Workforce EdTech LinkedIn group. Thanks for tuning in.